0: Welcome to The Curriculum, a podcast by Cornerstones Education. Here we discuss all things curriculum, plus leadership issues, teaching tips and much, much more. Hi everyone, I'm your host Caroline Pudner. Today's podcast features a conversation I had with Mary Myatt, who is a respected education advisor, speaker and writer, We discuss so many different topics, including the national curriculum, the implications for schools at the moment during the period of closure due to COVID-19, and forward planning, the importance of curriculum coherence, the balance of knowledge and skills in primary school, and much, much more. Mary is insightful, practical, and inspirational. So this is a must listen episode for anyone in primary senior leadership. Before we start the podcast, I'd just like to say that we did record it over Zoom, so the sound quality isn't up to our normal standards. But I hope you really enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you for joining me in this really odd situation that we're in, but we're fortunate enough to be able to talk to each other like this. So, how are you doing at the moment with the lockdown and how are you coping with it all?
1: It's a great opportunity for thinking and reading and writing. And so I've been using it for that, the time, which I would have been doing in the summer in any case. It's just, this time has just brought it forward. I enjoy working on my own. I love, I love, you know, interacting with others as well, but the the time alone is very precious. So this has been a bonus for me, but alongside that is the real awareness of how dreadful this is for so many people. And I think it's going to, just provides such sharp relief uh, between those for whom this has been a relatively comfortable experience and those who are really in dark straits mm. and I think it's just going to show up so many harsh things about conditions for many people. There's been so much in the media of people's stories it's really opened, I hope, opened people's eyes. What I hope emerges from this is a greater appreciation of the range of experiences that mm. is across our population, and i just some more sympathy towards that as well.
0: Yeah, I just thought it'd be really nice if you told the listeners a bit about what you do, Mary, because many people listening will have heard of you. I'm sure some may have worked
1: with you as well as senior leaders. So, what is the work that you do with schools? So, at the heart of what I do is working in schools, talking to pupils, teachers, and leaders. About leadership and the curriculum, and so that's been a thread of my work really since the early two hundreds, two thousands, even not that and <laughs> uh, Both from local authority, then becoming uh, working as an independent from two thousand and eleven. And what's happened in the last couple of years or so has been that the conversations have focused far more on the curriculum. So although that's always been a thread, and I do believe that the three are closely integrated the curriculum has gone higher up the agenda so that's um, a lot of my focus at the moment and has been for the last few years
0: yes and I mean some of your work and your thinking and your and your research has then turned into books hasn't it
1: I've written three and contributed to about another ten or so over the years but three under three under my belt and the last one was explicitly on the curriculum And I started writing that in late 2016. And the reason I started writing it is because I couldn't find a book that synthesized the thinking about what had happened in 2014 with the latest iteration of the curriculum. I couldn't find anything that drew together the threads. And I was at a a large conference in Bath and I was following Tim Oates, who, who, of course, led on that piece of work. Mm-hmm. and I'd just been talking to him about did he know of anything that had pulled it all together and uh, he couldn't and then I asked the audience 300 or so people I said Is there one book that would pull this all has pulled it all together anyway nothing so I knew then that for really to clarify my own thinking I needed to do some work on it and so it, it just so happened that then when it was published in 2018 I was working on it for about 18 months that it just coincided with the fact that the inspectorate. Um, and the latest framework had made the quality of the curriculum a much higher profile. So the two just came together. I wasn't doing it in anticipation of any Ofsted work relating to it.
0: No, I mean, we we were in that situation as well, because we've always worked in curriculum. And I wonder if you can e- just explore that a bit about the national curriculum, because in your book, tell me if I'm right, if I'm pronouncing this wrong, free or Gallimo <laughs> Gallimalfrey.
1: I pronounce it Gallimalfrey.
0: Gallimalfrey to coherence. Um, you remind readers that the national curriculum is a framework but it's not its not a scheme of work so you have to find the threads and we'll go into that in a bit in terms of looking at concepts but obviously there was a kind of feeling of panic would you say that leaders had this new national curriculum and it stipulates certain things but what what was your feeling about it when you saw it then?
1: Well there's a lot of variability in it so you look at some subjects and it's like hardly a page you know art Mm. and design and then you look at history and it's much lengthier so there's some variability within it but overall i think they're really useful documents the problem has been where there's been a temptation to go too soon into the detail of the content that needs to be taught without going back to the important statements for, you know, the rationale for why this subject is taught. So, I think some school leaders embrace this because of course what was also sitting behind this work was the removal of levels and i think we're still dealing with the legacy of that levels are still a subtext even if they're not called levels in too much of school's work but the i think the the leader's response um to it was that you know certainly lots so of primary schools it just felt like an awful lot but it's not when you break it down actually because across a key stage you know, this is this is across a key stage, these materials. Beyond the English yeah. and maths were specified for each year. So it's about breaking it down, but also making it coherent over that key stage.
0: Yes. I mean, is that something, and maybe you can tell me some of the things that senior leaders do ask you about and are worried
1: about. Is one of them coverage? How can I fit it all in? Yes. Uh, content coverage is certainly one of the themes that emerges as well as things like sequencing and making sure this all fits in with the three eyes. But the um, issue with content coverage is that that can often get in the way of children really learning things because quite often, you know, the lesson will move on too soon because we've got to finish the content rather than making sure that what has been taught is secure. And the second thing with content coverage, what I call the curse of content coverage, is that It's not about covering the content, it's making sure that children are secure in the concepts underpinning that unit of work and how that sits within the subject discipline. The other thing that relates to the content coverage is that we've fallen into the trap too often, I'm not talking about every school, but quite often what happens is we end up with blocked teaching, so we teach a unit, and then we might assess it or gather some evidence. And then we move on to the next unit and the next unit. And we never go back and revisit some of the important ideas or information or knowledge which was taught earlier. Mm. So there's that aspect of content coverage as well. It's not just racing through the curriculum, it's about finding these deep connections as well.
0: And that comes up when schools are considering their intent, doesn't it? And their purpose. So when you're mapping out your curriculum, it's so important to to step back and think in a subject what are the key concepts what's the key knowledge and skills we want children to have as geographers And then to make sure that recapping and that revisiting is threaded throughout the curriculum. You explain it very well in your book. I think, are you seeing more and more schools starting to think like that and and adopt that approach?
1: Yes, they are. And there's lots of great conversations about well, what are the concepts that we want to go through? How are we going to develop those? And it's not something that can be done in a staff meeting one afternoon. This is ongoing, iterative work. But I think there's two aspects to the intent. So if we're thinking of a a unit, say in history, before we decide on the intent for that unit, we've got to have had conversations about why we're teaching history. So what's magical about history? What is unique about this subject? Why is it important for pupils to be taught this subject? And this is both in primary and secondary, this needs to happen, so that we shift away from the idea that well, we're just teaching everything so that we get good SATS results. It's not expressed as crudely as that, but that is quite often an underlying narrative of how's this going to have an impact on SATS or GCSEs. And we've got to take a step back and say, this subject is important because. Now, we know and you will know that, you know, many colleagues in primary schools might be coordinating or leading a subject which they haven't experienced themselves since they were at school because we know that a lot of the programs for initial teacher education focus on english and math those are important but very little time is given to subject knowledge development beyond those so it's never a blame game but if we know that that's got big implications for leadership in terms of creating the time and the space for teachers to be able to develop that bigger Narrative for why this subject is important. So, one of the things that I do is I just share a quote for each of the national curriculum subjects and say to people, Do you agree with these or not? So, a quote from Marcus Garvey, for instance, um, on history that a people without a knowledge of their past history and culture, you know, is like a tree without roots. So, if we're working on history, do we agree with that? If we don't, why do we think history is important? And what we're finding when those conversations go on. That it starts getting people excited again about their subject. Yeah. So for me that's the first strand of the intent for the subjects and then the next strand of the intent, because I believe there's two layers to it, is for this unit what are we intending to teach our pupils, how are we going to take them through it and how we know if we've got this. It's, the intent, in a sense, starts drifting into the implementation and the impact. formal bit of the intent bit is you've got to be able to answer that question, which I think is a really good one that seems to be coming up in lots of inspections, is why are we teaching this? Not to catch people out, it's just, well, why are we teaching? Is it just because it's on the syllabus? I've got to have a, those bigger reasons, and that's part yeah. of the framing for the intent.
0: Definitely. That word rationale comes up a lot, doesn't it? What's the rationale? What is your thinking behind this? We're not just doing it because we're told to do it. Our curriculum approach is this, because this is right for our children in our context, in our school. I mean, senior leaders at the moment, they obviously are concerned about the curriculum, but they're biggest concern probably is when school reopens what can leaders be thinking about as their children come back into school obviously they've got a whole range of other priorities as well what advice would you give them mary I think
1: there's two strands to this, in terms of basically, we're thinking really about catch-up, aren't we? And and we're all very worried about those widening gaps. I think that is a really important question, but I think sitting behind that, and I know schools are doing a lot of work around just the personal and emotional well-being for pupils and staff, including all staff, not not just teachers, you know, everyone who's supported in in a school community, cleaners and lunchtime supervisors and cooks and things. So I know there's there's a lot of sensitive work going on around that. And I do think that needs investment and it's an investment in time. And so that is never wasted, I don't think, particularly when it's done carefully and thoughtfully. And there are two aspects I would say around that is I think it's important to create a space where the community are able to tell their individual stories because we'll all have a lot to share. Some of it very negative, some of it quite amusing, quite funny. And I think until some of that has come out, then it's going to be very hard to focus on the academic stuff, which is what we're there to do in school. So it's about creating some systems around that. And I was reading something by Adam Grant and Cheryl Sandberg the other day, just a, a newsletter that came through. And we know the importance of gratitude for all sorts of good things Mm. not least our mental health but just be grateful for the certain things that you know in our lives but they were saying something interesting actually to think on a regular basis about where have I made a contribution and I think there could be some really interesting um, things coming out of well where did I make a difference and so I think there does need to be some rich conversations around that that almost meeting that element Mm. of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and not to rush straight into the academic stuff. And I don't think that's going to happen anyway, because with phase, with phase returns, etc. I mean, these are just my, my views, and people can obviously disagree. But I do think that holding of the space for a bit is going to be really important. Then you've got a firm foundation for getting back into the work. But to turn to the specific concern about catch-up for many children, many of whom will have come from disadvantaged families, although not all, because we're also getting some reports of how brilliantly some kids are cracking on and really loving this way of working, you know, doing everything over and beyond what's been set by teachers and, you know, not in any mechanistic way but in a wholehearted way. So not to be stereotypical about who's going to be affected by this academically, but we know that a higher proportion of children from poorer backgrounds are going to be. And very interesting tweet from Sam Friedman a few days or so ago, that this was in response to Robert Halfen, who is the chair of the Education Committee. This was on the 20th of April, saying there's a need for a catch-up strategy when schools return. And three times 30-minute tuition sessions a week for disadvantaged kids would cost the government £700 for 12 weeks. Anyway, Sam's comment on that is that tuition is literally the only thing that has an effect size big enough to make a dent in the rich-poor attainment gap this crisis will create. So what I'm taking from that is that schools are going to need to think really carefully about purposeful, fast-paced, impactful interventions and if there is money sitting behind that to, to give it a boost, then great. But I do think that those children have got to be identified really quickly, but it's got to be swift because what we don't want happening is children missing out on what their peers are getting. A lot of schools will already have on their radar those children who are likely to be vulnerable. It's just about yeah. widening that rate and um, putting in really really strong programs to yeah. support
0: them. well we wish everyone well it's not an easy situation to be in but there'll be support available for for senior leaders and teachers and like you say the other staff who are in schools we just touched on it earlier about the new education inspection framework in your view for primary schools is it going to help things move in the right direction do you think it covered all it needed to do you welcome the new framework I do
1: welcome the new framework, but I would say that, you know, we're running our schools for our pupils and Mm. students not to try and second guess what inspectors might be looking for when they come in. Because, you know, I've of made it very clear they're not looking for anything beyond obviously safeguarding. They're looking at what schools are doing. And I think this is a really strong piece of work that has created really a framework for discussion about the quality of what we're offering children. And so I do welcome it. I think it's, I've got a lot of careful research sitting behind it i think it's drawn on some really thoughtful academics and researchers and i think the fact that they put it out in draft is an important signifier of the fact that there's a conversation with the sector you know in the past you know they just used to land in our inboxes or you know on the mats in school so i do think there's quite a lot sitting behind this in terms of the approach that the inspectorate is taking towards quality of what children get in schools. So, I mean, one of the concerns I have is that um, there are some parts of the sector that are carrying on as though the curriculum is a new thing, as though nobody had been doing anything on the curriculum like forever, which is ridiculous Mm. and pretty patronising. But what it has done is thrown a light on what our priorities are in schools. So, You know, there are a number of reasons why the quality of education, particularly in relation to the curriculum, has gone up the agenda. Both my work and Ofsted's work had identified this, is that we know that quite a few schools, actually for understandable reasons, have distorted in primary the curriculum by making six pupils um, do a lot of SATs practice in the mistaken belief that's going to get them better results because... And you can see why schools do it because they're worried about results, they want children to do as well as they can in their tests, and similarly, similar kind of pattern that secondary way we know about 50% of schools have got a three-year key stage four. So there's conversations going on around that. Mm. So if you if you look at the reading papers for the pupils who don't do so well in the SATS in year six, it tends to be a lack of vocabulary. So, how do we develop children's vocabulary? It's yes. it's through a broad and balanced curriculum. We know. That reading ability, there's a very, very close correlation with vocabulary. How do we give children vocabulary through a broad and balanced curriculum? And so, you know, so it was counterproductive. The second area that was identified well, there's plenty, but I've just picked up three beyond a distortion of priorities. And it's never a blame game. But one of the things that was picked up, particularly in primary, is the overemphasis on skills development and skills progression, as though the content. well well, what is the content underpinning it so while it's a worthwhile aim to develop children's skills we know that the development of skills is not separate from knowing things so a lot of schools have gotten a real muddle saying well we want to develop independent learners and you know problem solvers." yes but what is the content that is underpinning that and just because i can evaluate and analyze something well in history doesn't mean to say that I can do the same in geography if I don't know any geography. So one of the conversations that's needed to be had is we need to think of knowledge and skills as being like conjoined twins. My skills grow through exposure to and encountering engagement with the big ideas of the subject, that's how I get better. So the piece of work for lots of primaries is to to kind of park the skills really, for the time being, to say, what's, what's the knowledge we're going to teach them? What are the stuff they need to know? And then say, are we then growing their skills as they go through that? So there's been some misconceptions around that. And then the third area, which I've identified and Ofsted have as well in relation to the curriculum. And one of the things that I think has driven the quality of education judgment is about entitlement. So we know that some of our children who need additional support, they get so much additional support that they don't get the same curriculum offer as their peers. And one of the threads in this framework is the extent to which we're ambitious and uh, the intent is ambitious for all our pupils regardless of their starting points. And I find that really helpful. And then uh, within the implementation bit of the framework, it talks about um, are the materials and texts sufficiently demanding? So these are big pieces of work that schools need to be thinking about. Once the thinking's done, it's quite straightforward, I think, to put and just make sure it's really high quality materials that children are offered. And so, yes, I think it is a really helpful additional lens through which to have conversations about the quality of what's on offer to our pupils. Definitely.
0: When you talk about curriculum coherence and it does pop up in the education inspection framework. I mean, you're, you've written about it. We, we obviously have planned coherence in our curriculum. What does it mean to you and, and for the listeners? What does coherence mean in terms of curriculum design? It's about
1: being intentional about what we're teaching and why we're doing it. At then starts underpinning a kind of logic and a rationale behind why we're doing what we're doing because there's been a tendency to think about well we're going to do this we're going to do the romans poor romans now we're going to learn about the romans yes. so there's been too much reaching for quick resources that then when you look at children's folders beyond the english and maths work and you ask them to talk through what they've been learning in generally called their topic work, doesn't much matter what it's called as long as you've got some underlying ideas behind it it tends to be one worksheet stuck in after another and the topic seems to blend history geography and sometimes a bit of re so there's no thread for the child to make sense of this so this is why carence is important, so children understand why they're doing something or why something might have links with something else. So I'll give you a quick example of this, is that if children are taught, the, this is why the concepts are so important, are taught about, um, I've got colleagues who are doing this in, in Suffolk and in the run up to Christmas. So at key stage one, the children in our were taught about incarnation, which is a really big idea. It's a big Piece of Christian theology. But they're taught it. They're taught the concept and they're taught where it comes from. In means in in Latin and the car means flesh in Latin. And for Christians, it's a really important idea that God became human, took flesh in the form of baby Jesus at Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So, This provides coherence because the concept is made very explicit. So when children are hearing uh, the nativity accounts in the Gospels, when they're doing the nativity plays, where everyone comes and watches them, when they're doing all that sparkly stuff that goes on in primary schools in the run-up to Christmas, it's all underpinned by the idea of incarnation. Because they've had lots of practice talking about it, this is all done because Christians believe that God became human in the form of baby Jesus at Christmas. That starts creating coherence in the child's mind, the building intellectual architecture. So instead of it's just random stuff we're doing, it's underpinned by a big idea. And this is important for children to know, be able to talk about this on their own terms, regardless of their faith or belief background, regardless of the teacher's faith belief background. And there'll be similar big pieces of theology and and important ideas sitting in all the faith traditions. So it's in that sense that we build coherence so that children have a better grasp of why we're learning something, what the underpinning ideas. So making those connections across subjects, across context,
0: but also within the subject so that you you develop understanding of, of those big ideas it's something that they can grow and build upon like
1: a schema isn't it really in their mind exactly and that's why there's a lot of talk to about the vertical links and the horizontal links concepts so we're thinking about the big ideas as they grow up through a, a subject but then where they might make links across as well and so that's why this work has to be iterative it can't just be done um you know through a quick discussion it's, it's a very nuanced piece of work but we're finding that you know when people get their heads around they're loving it
0: yes it's quite satisfying we've done a body of work on this and it has been it's very detailed but when you do get there um, and you see you can highlight threads throughout a curriculum it, it is like you say it's very satisfying and it provides meaning so again you're trying to avoid that random selection of activities there's more depth to it isn't there so earlier you, we were talking about knowledge and skills, but there are leaders who are worried about getting that balance right. What would you say to them? What, what advice do you give leaders?
1: Um, I think that the, the shift has to be, at least in the short term, onto a focus on knowledge, because I think it's just been too haphazard in the past. And children need to know stuff, and we've got to find the most efficient ways of getting them to know stuff. Yeah. Now, I think we've got some assumptions we can make here, and that is that children love learning new things. Let's just make the assumption they love it because they do. I think we make the assumption that we need to give them material above their pay grade because too much of what is offered to children is given to them because um, and it's sort of downgraded To the level of their reading ability but we know that their reading ability lags behind what they can understand orally hearing and and orally in the way they talk Mm. so hourly and orally so a big thread of this work i think is about the most efficient ways to offer children rich knowledge so we know two things that we know lots of things but two things i'm going to emphasize in relation to this is that the more a child knows the better they're going to comprehend in particular and also in general and the second thing we know from the cognitive science is that our brains privilege story and so what i'm saying to a lot of leaders is underpin in the first instance your curricular thinking with stories and the texts have got to be above children's pay grade because all the evidence is they can cope and that is then going to feed into stronger outcomes in their written work and in their talk but we can't short circuit it and try and do it through quick worksheets and, and word banks and things. They've got to have the rich context of material. It's the most efficient way to get the big language, the big ideas, stuff of great lexical depth and complexity is through high quality texts.
0: Yes, good point. It's, it's also then engaging for children, isn't it? Through stories. That's how humans have often transferred knowledge historically, haven't we? You can't just do a kind of pub quiz style here's some knowledge to learn and regurgitate so going back to that coherence and connection these chunks of knowledge as you put it in your book they have to be offered to children so that they make sense of them and connect them and build upon them so how do senior leaders go about planning curriculum content to in order to do that should they be thinking about that with their
1: with knowledge acquisition Yes, and they need to be creating the time for this. It doesn't just fall off a log, you know, um, that it's fine to draw on, you know, wider pre-prepared material. But this this work has to be underpinned by why we're doing this in this school and why reinvent the wheel if there are strong materials out there. There's no need to do everything from scratch.
0: Going on to assessment now Mary how do you see assessment sitting alongside curriculum delivery uh, you mentioned that it, it bridges the teaching and learning what do schools need to think about in terms of assessing their curriculum
1: well assessing it in terms of whether it has impact or not is the first step i think it's very interesting in the in the framework it talks quite a lot about assessment but for the most part it's talking about formative assessment that is the daily interaction with high quality questioning and responses through which teachers gain insight as to whether children have learnt what has been intended. So it's that dialogic way of uh, of assessing. So that's one strand. Another strand of thinking about whether this is having impact, I would say the dialogic one and the formative assessment is the most powerful because that's moving children's learning on in the moment. The second is through short, low stakes quizzes and tests. We know that um, they have to be quite short. They have to be low stakes and that the children, uh, for the most part, answer them, uh, mark them themselves and the results are private to them. Two things happen there is that the teacher has a sense of whether the children have got them right, because we talk yeah. about whether they got it right and what we might have struggled with. If the whole class gets them right, probably too easy, those sorts of conversations. And then, but we also know that that kind of retrieval practice strengthens Learning in the long term, so it's actually good for their learning as well. Yeah. And then the third area is what did children produce as a result of what they've been taught. So um, Tim Oates was very good on this when he was talking about when the latest curriculum came in. So we've got in. We need insights into whether children have learned what we've taught them through what they produce, the products of their learning. Yeah. So what is the work that they produced? And from that, we're able to make some judgments about whether they've actually got what we intended them to learn. So it might be something that's written, but too often as a sector, we rush to get written evidence. And that's a very complicated picture of the need for accountability, the need to prove I've done something this lesson. And what we're doing is we're short circuiting the speaking, the listening and the reading before we get to any writing. So I find it very helpful the way Tim talked about products, anything that a child produces. So it could be low stakes quizzes, could be multiple choice, it could be uh, something they create uh, you, you know, as an artifact, it could be a speech and it could be written work. It could be any number of things. And then we as teachers are able to say, on this basis, my children, I've got evidence whether my children have got it or not. Mm-hmm. And if they haven't got it, what am I doing about it? And if they have got it, how am I celebrating it or how are we honoring it? So you'll notice in all this that there is no mention of a number or a grade. Or because- a level. <laughs> no. Or no level Because, you know, a big thread of the framework has been informed by Christine Council's thinking on curriculum and progression models. And what's now understood is the curriculum itself is a progression model. Mm. I have taught it. Have they got it? End of story. Have some of them got it to a greater depth? I might want to capture that. But the problem with levels and numbers and all that sort of stuff is it masks what a child really can do. So I think linked to this is the work of comparative judgment, Daisy Christodoulou's work, and uh, that we know good work when we see it. So this is an area that I think has got enormous potential for leaders in terms of opening up conversations about what high quality work looks like, and dump dump the data. Yes. We're going to you can only really talk about the data that's happened at the end of key stage two and four and five. Everything else is neither valid nor reliable, so to get shot of it. It's a bit, bit radical, but it's the only way we're going to shift this agenda.
0: There was a quote in your book actually from Russell Hobby. that said the job of a good curriculum is to inspire teachers, not instruct them. Do you feel it's quite an exciting time then in I know obviously with the lockdown and the situation we're in, it's it's very challenging, but in terms of your longer view, Mary, about the curricula that are on offer in England schools, are you hopeful? Do you think things are moving in the right direction?
1: Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, I'm very hopeful. And one of the things that really um, uh, heartens me is, you know, teachers falling back in love with their subjects again, mm. and youngsters just being thrilled to bits with what they're learning. I'm not saying this wasn't happening before, but there's a much sharper energy about this. And I think that's going to carry the profession forward. Sitting alongside that, we've got to be so hard-nosed about getting shot of anything that's not adding value to learning. For me, that's the next big piece of work.
0: Are you going to be writing in another book, do you think?
1: Uh, yes, I'm writing one at the moment. So I had started writing after the Gallo mofrey one. I'd started fairly shortly pulling together my thoughts on really streamlining everything but i've been able to pick it up in the last few weeks or so ago and it'll be coming out later this summer so the the working title is back on track and it's drawing heavily on the ideas of essentialism greg mccown's essentialism so we look at all our practices and systems and we ask ourselves the question is it fit for purpose what is the purpose if it's not adding value to children's learning if that's what we've decided our purpose is then we cut it right back. so I'm having a very interesting time uh, collecting my thoughts, reading widely, and then making something which I hope colleagues are going to find helpful.
0: Brilliant. well we'll look forward to reading that, Mary, when it comes up. Did you say later this year sometime? It
1: should be out by the end of the summer term, I think, so it's quite far ahead.
0: yeah in the meantime, if people want to find out more about your work and your ideas, you've got a website, you're on Twitter. And we'll put a link with the podcast to your books as well and where to find you. And you do visit schools, don't you? And how often do you go into schools? Is it something that you regularly
1: do? What's tended to happen is that I'm, I now mostly visit schools as part of my own personal research. I do far less school improvement work now because the work has moved on to a you know, lot of conferences, lots of keynotes, lots of online work. So I do, do still do this. I've got a number lined up for the autumn where there's really interesting stuff going on against the odds. And that's what I want to tease out. That's yeah. how it's working out at the moment.
0: I think some were worried knowledge would be stuffy, you know, to learn. And it's, the schools are a bit wary of it. So it's trying to ease the profession into thinking this isn't secondary school education.
1: I think you're right. That has been a response that quite a few people thought, oh, this is going to turn it into a pub? pub quiz education Mm -hmm. or you know a grad-grindian view of education and it's not that at all it's about children having an entitlement to the big ideas that if they didn't come to school they wouldn't get that's why they're in school to, to find out about some big exciting stuff
0: well we'll come to the end of the podcast mary thank you so much for joining me and taking the time to talk it's been really inspirational and hopefully even though we're in a very difficult situation there is hope isn't there and the right conversations are happening and people are starting to think about their purpose and get to the the core of it really and the work of various people in education has really helped that and in the end it's it's going to have a good result, isn't it? Um, Because in the end it's for the children. So thank you so much and all the best for you in the rest of this lockdown period.
1: It's been absolutely great chatting, really enjoyed it.